Hi, and uh, welcome to SN Off the Shelf. I'm Chloe Riley, executive editor of Supermarket News. Uh, Deloitte just released some 2023 industry outlook data and to help us make sense of that data, today I'm joined by Nick Hendrinos, vice chairman and leader of Deloitte LLP's retail, er, retail and consumer products. Nick, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So Nick, this uh, outlook report, you know, kicks off with uh, what I think is a great question, which is, uh, was this a good year or a bad year for the industry? And Nick, I would love, uh, obviously, to know what your what your take is on that question because I think it's a good one. Yeah. So I have two views on that question. Um, if you were to take the positive lens to the question and say, well, what was good about the year? What you would say is on the food manufacturer side and from a value creation standpoint, the sector has created a lot of value. So it went from being a, a sector that was discounted by almost 20% to the S&P 500, now being in a position of being a 20% premium to the sector 12 months later. So the capital markets looked at what this cohort has done, at least on the food manufacturing side, and said, there's been value creation here, notwithstanding a lot of the volatility. So that would be a, a positive uh, on that side. Number two, I, I think this is unprecedented volatility. So many issues coming at management teams, so fast, so different. We've heard them all. Inflation, interest rates, labor strife, um, uh, you know, geopolitical and ingredient risk, um, you know, regulatory changes and shifts. I mean, just about every variable that has been consistent and stable for over a decade or two decades has been up for grabs. And so I think the second positive is that you've got to give management teams across the value chain, retailers and manufacturers, and you got to give them a pat on the back and said, boy, you really did the most with what you could, given what was coming at you and the speed it was coming at you and how different it was and changed. And number three, I think there's even been improvements in actual products that consumers use day to day that still were ongoing even in the midst of all this. So the industry's ability to innovate and add value to consumers' lives was still there. Um, you can see advertisements, if, if some of the audience looks, where you see two products being compared and one telling you how much better it performs. That innovation commitment is still there for the industry. So I think those are all the goods. In terms of the toss-ups or the you know, could go either way. You know, I think a lot of the volatility and pressure that the industry found exposed the fragility of it. So understanding that a single supplier or a single commodity category and ingredient affected the business so much, um, or the fact that in-stock positions were taken for granted at 98% plus, and when they fall down into the mid 80s. So I call that some fragility and just how good we had it, didn't know how good we had it and risks we were sitting on maybe that we didn't know were as risky because we were lulled to sleep for quite some time and sort of expected those things to be there. And when they're not there, boy, business gets tough quickly. The second thing I'd say is that 
the year has sped up for volume deceleration given price increases. So all that volatility, volatility has led to inefficiency, which has led to cost, which has led to an ability for, mar for margin to be managed more effectively and tightly. And essentially the biggest lever management teams had at their disposal, both on the retailer and manufacturer side has been price. And that price has been pushed out as far as I think it can go. Maybe it's got a little more to go until it just prices consumers out. And then you got a big problem, which is how do you get them back? It costs to get them back. Um, volumes and overheads get, 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 get affected. So that's the second theme is just volume pricing uh, and the slowdown in that, I think, would be a toss-up to a slightly negative that you got to keep your eye out for. And I think the, the third thing would be that um, because of the pandemic and the way that consumers change their behaviors, things like staying at home and consuming at home more, um, those things have led to uh, less promotional investment required, less marketing investment required to stimulate demand. And I think um, that's a potential headwind going into this year. So the real quick recap on that simple question is, on the positive, 22 has been a great value creation year for most in the industry. The capital markets rewarded that. Um, it's been an incredible management feat across the value chain to manage through this amount of volatility and change. Innovation continues to be invested in, and that could have easily been, been pulled, and it wasn't. I think on the question mark side, it's it's a lot riskier business than we knew, and we got to get on that. There's some fragility in there. And I think we got to watch out for volume. It's decelerated throughout 2022. And if we push it too far on the price side, it may fall off of a cliff in 23, and that'll be really bad for everybody. At the end of the day, the investment in stimulating demand, whether it be in-store promotions or social media advertising, digital advertising, or traditional advertising, those spigots, are, I think, are going to be turned up for 23, um, and we're relatively modest and conservative in 22. That was a lot said, but that's how I would frame it. No, no, I, you, it was a lot said, but it was a lot of uh, valuable things you said there. Um, and I feel like, uh, you know, my takeaway from that is like anything, you know, it's a mixed bag uh, and it kind of depends on what way you look at it. Uh, I was going to say some of the biggest um, challenges, you know, of the past year, um, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, you know, according to your Outlook reporter, were labor, supply chain, inflation, um, you know, and the, like I said, the report touches on all three of those. Um, let's let's start with labor. What are what are some of the takeaways on how, uh, you know, retailers are thinking about labor going into 2023? Yeah, I think. um Labor was one of those variables I talked about that made managing very difficult. Um, I think the immediate term strategy and reaction for labor has been, frankly, wage inflation. So pay, pay to get the labor back. Um, hope that some of the stimuli that created some of the labor challenges dissipates, namely the governmental checks that were sent out, et cetera, um, and see people come back to work. I think that's largely happened. Uh, it's not to say that 23 won't have its its interesting uh, issues. I don't think they are as pronounced 
as they were in 22. They'll still be there. But I think if you talk to the average retailer, they would tell you they feel like they've got their labor house sort of getting there. So call it a quarter or two um, before I think it gets somewhere where they feel like they've got their arms around it. So we're just at that precipice of it being manageable. I don't think it's perfect, and I don't think it's what it has been historically, but that's where it's been. I think over the medium to long term, it does trigger a question of um, what do we use labor for and do we want to be invested in it as much? And you see other complementary channels um, where things like automated ordering, robots, uh, natural language processing. If you've been through a drive-through, sometimes you're not even talking to a human anymore. So these type of technological advancements have been invested in primarily to help offset the risk associated with labor. I think final thing I'd say on labor, which Again, I think it's too near in right now, but over the medium to long run, the issues we faced are going to create talent problems because how many stories have you heard of the, you know, the Sally who is a stock keeper who worked her way up and became the CFO of a retailer 15 or 20 years later? That feeder process, I think, has been disrupted. And so I don't think it's something to think about this year, but five, eight, 10 years down the road. I do think we'd look back on this period and say that was the period of time where maybe even some of our you know, leadership talent was affected. So short-term, immediate-term, it's focusing on the employee. It's investing in them through compensation and wage increases. In the medium to long run, it's looking at alternative technologies that affect labor and what labor does. And I think with a corollary or a little asterisk that says, look out, there's a talent and leadership issue underlying this that I think you ought to keep your eye on. Nick, do you think too, um, with regard to automation, I'm, I'm even just thinking, um, you know, minimum wage just went up in 23 states across the country on, on Jan 1. Um, and we just put a poll out on LinkedIn, for instance, and it really felt split 50-50 um, in terms of, you know, who's going to turn start turning towards automation or, uh, you know, cost-cutting uh, in terms of managing, you know, costs associated with minimum wage going up. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Or was there anything in the report that suggests, you know, that that might be the case? Um, we didn't hone in on minimum wage specifically as being a driver. I think the frame I'd offer is the lower the net margin business and the higher the exposure to labor, whether it be regulatory or, or normal market forces driving up any cost, labor being one, is going to spur innovation. Otherwise, you're going to be out of business. You're going to have an insolvent business that, that the economics just don't make sense for. So you either innovate away the issue um, or, or you dilute yourself to a point where either you have to accept new margins, which will be value destructive, uh, or frankly, you know, face the fact that you're not really a business that makes sense anymore. Let's uh, let's pivot over to supply chain. Um, according to your report, some 62% of respondents, um, you know, expect that supply chain issues are, are still going to be a big challenge in 2023. Uh, can you kind of break that down for us? Sure. Um, I think there is an underlying labor challenge with that. So you can go all the way back to whether it's a factory worker, a distribution center worker, or in-store um, uh, labor, 
that will continue to be challenging and affect essentially the flow of goods and the efficiency of the flow of goods. Um, there are all sorts of logistical variables that have really wreaked havoc that I think are normalizing quickly back to historical levels. Uh, I think the best example of that is overseas freight rates have really fallen off of a cliff. So you'll see that snap back. You know, those costs were really difficult to handle supply chain wise. Ingredient costs, again, the, the volatility of supply of those plus the cost of those affected the supply chain. Um, and it essentially led to a position where the in-stock positions retailers were accustomed to fell all the way down to sort of the low 80%. Uh, those are back up into the high 80s, low 90s and trending quickly into the mid to high 90s. I think it'll take us a good year to continue to work through that. Um, and I also think there are still macroeconomic dynamics in play that take a lot of time to fix. You're not changing, you know, ingredient suppliers overnight. You're not changing sourcing strategies uh, overnight. You're not changing geopolitical areas around the globe overnight. Those things take time. So indeed, as you said in the intro on supply chain, supply chain will continue to be um, a hot button issue and area and a challenge that management teams will stay laser focused on. Um, and I'd also add another dynamic, which I would put into the supply chain bucket, which is shrink. And that includes both organized retail theft plus normal normal course theft. The, the, the announcements we've seen about that, I think also um, you know, are supply chain issues, if you will, right? If product in, in, on shelf, that's a supply chain and distribution and, and in-store merchandising problem. So that's supply chain in a bucket. Yeah, hey, that's that that, yeah, all all of that tracks with uh, kind of what the report was saying, and yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I was going to say on inflation, uh, we just we touched on this a little bit, but uh, I know your report indicates that you know 2022 set the record for high, you know higher CPG prices. Um, where does that leave us for 2023? I mean, I know we were just talking about you know that we're you're basically saying consumers have we're almost hitting the threshold for, you know, continuing to pay higher prices. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what that looks like. Yeah, I mentioned in my intro comments that the toss up or the, you know, could go either way was this volume deceleration tied to pricing so that you can manage your margins. Um, to be very specific and direct about your question, I think pricing still has a way to go in 23. Uh, I would separate it into the first half and back half of the year. I think in the first half of the year, you'll see continued price increases. I, I know um, I know that is happening as we speak. So there, there will continue to be price increases. I think the magnitude of them are decelerating. They're slowing down. The magnitude isn't as high. And I think most in the industry would agree that we're approaching a frontier where you're playing with elasticity dynamite. You light this fuse the wrong way, and you could either force trade down to value-oriented brands and or private label for the branded manufacturers. They don't want that. Retailers might welcome that. Um, uh, and at the same time, you start to hit um, consumers potentially even exiting the category, which is very expensive, expensive to remediate. So I think as you approach the back half, Pricing will not 
will not continue at the pace that it has. I think it'll all be behind us. And you'll go into 24, I think, a little bit more stable on that front. I think we're in the final throes and chapters of pricing, frankly. And I think we are bumping up against elasticity concerns and volume deceleration concerns and trade down concerns that are very, very real. The other final thing I'd say is I think in terms of net pricing, uh, I think you're gonna see in-store promotions accelerate. So while you may pass along a price increase, you may give back some of it because you're having to promote either at more frequency or a deeper depth of discount. So the net net of it may not be as bad as we saw in 22. Sure. So it sounds like we're getting close maybe to that pricing threshold. We're not quite there yet, but you think we're almost there. And then you think um, some of that might shift over to promotions. Is that right? I think you'll see promotion increase. I think a stat that we looked at was, I think we're somewhere around 15 to 20% lower in terms of frequency and depth of promotions on average than we were used to. And that's because, you know, during the pandemic, people would, would grab what they could. You remember the famous toilet paper shortage, right? There's things like that that drove consumer behavior. You didn't need to promote around that. You didn't need to advertise or create, what, you know, demand driver investment to do that. I think that's coming back. And I think you're going to have to sit, you're going to have to start calibrating that a lot better than you had to before. Great to know. Um, uh, I want to switch over to... Um... I thought this was interesting. There were, you guys had some takeaways around profitable growth leaders. What are the, some of the things profitable growth leaders are doing sort of at the highest level? Yeah. I think the first thing I'd say is when, when you think about a management team and their remit, what they're really doing is allocating capital, whether it be how they spend expense or how they do CapEx or what they're doing. So leaders start with that mindset, which is, if we're going to allocate capital, how are we doing that? And how do we make sure we get the highest return on that? I know that sounds unbelievably obvious and basic, but you'd be surprised how many jump over that step and just get into the operations of the day-to-day. -day. I think you got to step back and say, the true leaders in the industry do think about the stewardship of capital and where their investments yield a return. And let me just do a little bit of an off-ramp on that. There are a number of great things going on to digitize the business. What we're looking at and trying to help clients with, and we're waiting um, to see how we can get better at this, but some of the things that are offered don't make any money. Buying online, picking up in store, you're talking about store labor having to touch inventory twice. That's a disastrous thing for a retailer. So we've got to continue to innovate. It's a great service that drives consumer foot traffic. I don't begrudge it in that regard. But again, if you start with capital allocation and generating a return, you either going to have a portfolio of things that lose you return on capital, like those things, but you better be confident in how you're making that up in other ways. Okay, so the first thing I'd say profitable growers do is they start with a capital allocation and return mindset. The second thing they do a little bit more operationally is that um, they're really advancing their marketing and their communication with shoppers and consumers in the digital world. So whether that's through social media, mobile, even discussions about metaverse, et cetera, uh, that's the new way to market. And they're certainly part of the traditional mix that'll never go away. But 
the, the diversity of consumers we're dealing with and shoppers today, they consume thing, they consume media and messages in a very different way, including experientially. Pop-up stores, experiences where products are placed. That's very different than the 30-second or 60-second commercial at, at 8 p.m. on your your you know local cable channel. So social commerce, all that very important. I think leaders are uh, committed to product superiority and innovation. Um, so that doesn't ever go away. I think the leaders have that in their ethos. Um, I think supply chain resiliency. We, we talked a lot during this conversation about that. Uh, as boring as that sounds, it's not boring anymore. Supply chain is a seat at the table that matters uh, and will continue to matter for the foreseeable future. Now, and then the final thing I'd say is omni-channel, whatever buzzword you want to use, but consumers want to be able to purchase and interact with the product in a number of different ways, a number of different media. And so you're going to have to really understand how to make that a seamless experience so it doesn't look like I'm dealing with four different companies when I want to buy the product or service that I'm involved with. So as a retailer, I'd be thinking about that. There's some obvious ones I didn't spend a lot of time on real quickly, but you better be world-class at pricing and margin management, net revenue management. Um, you better be good with labor and understanding how to manage through that. Um, but at the end of the day, that's the type of mindset and type of levers that leaders are doing better than the average companies or laggards. Right. And it sounds like all of that um, sort of speaks to this idea of the changing consumer, which you guys have uh, also in your report, um, that it's trying to meet meet the, meet that changing consumer where they are now. Uh, is that right? Yeah, that's well said, Chloe. I think that's exactly right. First thing is the the mix of the consumer base and the diversity of that is changing so rapidly that just who the human beings are we're trying to talk to and convince uh, to come into our franchise is different across all sorts of attributes that are well chronicled. So just the diversity of the shopper and consumer, you know, you got to acknowledge as you think about how are you going to make sense and be relevant to them? Um, you know, the second thing is that the consumer obviously isn't the same around the globe. And so if you've got exposure globally, what, what works in Europe and South America doesn't work in the U.S. or Asia. And, and there are very different economic positions those consumers are in. People are really struggling in Europe, probably way more so than in Asia. And so it stands to reason that luxury and, and higher price point propositions in China might fare better right now than, let's say, in Central Europe. So the consumer is very hard to get your arms around, and you've got to really talk about um, the shopper and the consumer at a granular level to understand, you know, how you're going to meet them where they are, and how you're going to get them to be interested in the value you have to offer them. Um, so, I mean, th that's what we mean when we talk about this changing consumer um, and how you're really going to win with them. That's great, Nick. I feel like the Takeaways I have from this conversation are supply chain is real. It's not going away and you've got to be smart about it. Uh, you know, this idea of the changing consumer uh, and omni-channel and really being mindful of that going into your strategy in 2023 stands out to me. Um, and uh, 
and yeah, and I feel like, uh, you know, just what you said earlier, uh, it may be obvious, but really thinking with that really putting on that really strong hat of ROI uh, and being willing maybe to eliminate things that, you know, don't fit with that plan, uh, even even if it might seem counterintuitive. Completely agree, Chloe. I think that's a great synopsis. Great. Well, Nick, anything else, uh, anything else you'd like to add today? Well, Chloe, I think we're coming off of an incredibly volatile and different period of time for this industry. This industry is known for its stability and its reliability and its sort of, you know, ability to just crank day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. That's been thrown on its head over the last two and a half, three years. And I'd say is we're starting to revert back to that, but we still have some time to go. Um, and the variables are still still volatile enough that I'm not able to tell you that I think once we get through 23, 24 will be stable. But I would tell you sitting here right now, that's the trajectory I think we're on. Absent some massive shift in any of these variables, interest rates, wars, um, regulatory, political environment, labor, et cetera, I do think we're in the latter chapters of the volatility. Uh, and 24 is probably a good bet for more stability. That's feel, where we are, Chloe. I feel like, Nick, could you just please keep saying the word stability? Maybe oh, <laughs> put, put that on a, a tape on a loop and play it over and over for me. We need it. We need I, it for sure. I'm, sure, I'm sure I speak for the entire audience when we say, you know, yes, yes, please, to more stability. Totally agree. Yeah. Well, Nick, thanks so much uh, for helping us break down this report and giving us your insights. And uh, thanks again for joining us today. Uh, it was a pleasure to be with you, Chloe. Thank you.